Gentlemen, start your engines. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. I believe this might be his third or fourth visit with us. Robert W. Sullivan IV is a historian, philosopher, expert on antiques. He's also an attorney, a lay theologian, a writer, a radio TV personality, and best-selling author. And he's got a ton of books uh, over there on Amazon. There is The Royal Arch of Enoch. That's the newest one. Cinema Symbolism three and then there's the first book and the second book and uh quite a few titles here to to pick from and good to have you back with us rob you're always a fun guest hey thanks jim thanks for having me on tonight it's my pleasure to be here so this this book um the royal arch of enoch have we talked about that one before what is that book about Oh, I think so. That's my first book. That's been out for quite some time now. Um, that's about Freemasonry, and uh, I'm a Mason myself. And um, the sort of the, I mean, it's it's a book about the Masonic influence upon the United States. It presents an, the the thesis of the book is it presents an anomaly that is that there's a high degree ritual known as the Royal Arch of Enoch. Um, it's the 13th in the Scottish Rite. It's the 7th in the York Rite. Um, the ritual was developed in the 1740s, 1750s in France, and um, it contains components of the lost Book of Enoch, hmm. um, which shouldn't be happening because that book was lost to Western civilization from around the 2nd, 3rd century up until about 17th, 1783, I want to say. Um, and then even then, it wasn't even translated into English until about 1815. Um, so that that's what the uh, Royal Arch of Enoch about. It's a, it's a lot of Masonic history. Um, uh, and that was my first book that came out. It's hard to believe almost uh, originally it came out 10 years ago. Wow. OK, um, so Am- Amazon kind of has them listed then in maybe in, in a little bit of a mixed order because that one is listed like as like the most recent. So that's not definitely not the most recent. And speaking of of Masons and all of that, uh, we have a a listener who had contacted me even before the show and said, make sure you ask him about Masonic, you know, symbols. I mean, obviously, I'm not that uh, I'm not that up on masonry and all of that. But I can tell you that it seemed to me no coincidence that here you are, you're a mason and you're into all this uh, symbolism stuff. And then you carried it into the modern culture. Um, is that really the the root of this for you was was the masonic symbols then got you into looking into symbolism in general and, and carrying it forward to the three books? Oh, I, I think so. Um, Amazon lists them, by the way, in popularity. Oh, okay. Go first. In December. They around, um, and they move around quite a lot. Uh, it just depends on how when you look at it. That's the way Amazon usually uh, lists them or puts them up on the Amazon uh, page. But, um, yeah, let's see. I've, I've been involved in Freemasonry right now for years. 
20, over 25 years now. Rob, I don't know what's and, happening. Uh, yeah, Rob, you're you're like you're kind of cutting in and out. I don't know if that's a, a, a cord on your microphone or uh, what, but I'm making out I'm making out what you're saying. It's just kind of cutting in and out a little bit. So I don't know if there's anything you could do to play around with your uh, cord there, your connection. But uh, yeah, so so one, in fact, one of the things I wanted to ask you about first, in honor of that uh, listener who was who was asking about that, was that movie National Treasure. That had a lot of stuff in it about masonry, didn't it? Oh yeah, that's uh, that, that's uh, a movie that um, was one of the first movies that really got me uh, involved um, in sort of decoding films on an esoteric level. Uh, the very first National Treasure movie, uh, this is the one that came out in two thousand four, um, is a retelling um, of the Royal Arch of Enoch ritual. Okay, uh, if, if if you're familiar. Um, with that high degree ceremony, um, you should recognize it. Uh, it's, it's a re- retelling of the ritual. The ritual involves, um, again, this is the 13th in the Scottish Rite, it's the 7th in the York Rite. Um, it, it, the, the ritual documents the recovery of this Masonic treasure um, that is located on the holy ground in Jerusalem beneath the Temple Mount in a subterranean treasure vault. Uh, if, if, you've, if you've seen the first National Treasure movie, that's exactly what the movie is um it's the recovery of this lost masonic knights templar treasure uh in a subterranean vault uh beneath the holy ground they put it in the, in the movie was set in new york which was a, a, an homage to a man named dewitt clinton uh who was uh, a, a very famous uh, royal arch mason he was the former mayor of new york city former governor of new york state um so yeah i mean uh when 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 I was doing the the breakdown of that book uh, movie, excuse me, will actually appear in the very first uh, book I wrote, The Royal Arch of Enoch. Um, when I was writing that book, um, I was dealing with a lot of Masonic history, a lot of um, you know very ancient um, philosophies and things like that. When I included that book, I wanted to bring it up to modern times. So I, Royal Arch analyzed uh, at the very last chapter. Um, some Masonic symbolisms. And one of the movies that I included was, uh, the very first national treasure. And it's really, um, it's really the conclusion of the Royal Arch of Enoch. Um, the, um, the final chapter that these other movies sprang from. Um, so the, the end of the Royal Arch of Enoch, um, I can't remember what chapter number it is that, that, that talk about Masonic symbolism in films. I know I did national treasure. I did national treasure too. Um, I can't remember some of the others, but, uh, that, that was, um, that was, you know, the springboard, I guess, that launched me into uh, writing the books about the movie symbolism. Well, I've got to ask you about the Knights Templar, because we recently one of the big topics on our show has been the Shroud of Turin. And the Shroud of Turin was for some period of time under the control of the Knights Templar. And um, I was just curious, have you ever uh, done any study of that period of time? And is there any symbolism connected to the Shroud of Turin? Um, well, not, not, not in cinema or popular culture that I'm aware of. I am aware that the Templars um, did own that at one point in time. There is a Masonic, uh, a definite Masonic uh, Knight Templar connection. Uh, it comes into Freemasonry uh, a few years after it's created officially uh, in 1717. It, it comes into uh, Masonry through a man named uh, Andrew Michael Chevalier Ramsey, uh, who gives an oration. Uh, it's called Ramsey's Oration, and, and he sort of breaks 
with the traditional approach with Freemasonry, where up until that point, Masonry was seen as descending from uh, biblical stone workers. Um, Ramsey deviates on that, and he says, no, it comes from the Knights Templars um, and, 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 and these Templar Knights uh, in the Holy Land. Um, and, it, and it causes a sort of rift in Freemasonry, not a rift per se, but definitely a sort of philosophical division. And it's, uh, it's, it's from this oration that um, the, the high degrees uh, sprang. And if if you if you look if you look at the high degrees as compared to Blue Lodge Freemasonry, um, it, they are decidedly more Roman Catholic uh, than than the Blue Lodge. The Blue Lodge is sort of Protestant. Uh, the the uh, the high degrees um, Ramsey was a Roman Catholic, um, and the high degrees were developed by the Society of Jesus um, as part of the Counter Reformation. So when you look at Blue Lodge Freemasonry, it's inherently uh, Protestant, but when you get into the high degrees, you definitely get this more Roman Catholic, hmm. Kabbalistic uh, vibe to them. Interesting. Uh, but uh, yeah, I know, I know the uh, Templars did own the Shroud of Turin at one point. Um, they were accused. It's, it's one of the things they were accused of possibly worshiping. Um, but uh, I, I know no no other thing of it other than that. Very good. So I'm going to just jump around here and get to some of these these interesting uh, connections. This one I found re- very fascinating. Of course, I, I grew up in Chicago. I'm not sure that you knew that the John Wayne Gacy story was a story that I uh, I grew up with that story. Uh, and everything about that story still to this day creeps me out. The fact that he was uh, a neighborhood clown. And that was sort of his his side gig was was being a clown at kids parties. And I was a kid that had a clown at my party at my birthday party. I don't know if it was him or not. I doubt it was. But that was a thing you did back then. You got they had clowns that would come to parties. And you have here that uh, the Joker, uh, there's there's the um, sort of a correlation there between the Joker, the evil clown and uh, John Gacy. Yeah, it's 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 really the the Joaquin Phoenix movie. Um, it's it's not the Joker per se, uh, but it was the it was the John it was the uh, Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, it's a very dark film. Um, I very much liked it, um, but it's a very dark film. And if you watch um, the one with Joaquin Phoenix, the Joker's uh, face paint is modeled after John Wayne Gacy's Pogo the Clown uh, or Patches the Clown with you know the triangular. Uh, blue, uh, you know, eye shadows and, 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 and the, and the red, red smile. Um, and Gacy's clown makeup actually has an interesting history to it. Um, and they clearly used it in Joker. Uh, again, a very dark film. Um, but, uh, if, if you research Gacy's clown makeup, it was some, somewhat subconscious. Uh, they say when Gacy was applying it, he was using patterns. Uh, you know, the dark, the dark eye color triangles. Um, these are traditional patterns and colors that, uh, clouds shy away from. Um, and the, and the reason is it's, it's, it's if you look at Gacy's face paint, um, and they think this was done subconsciously. They don't think Gacy was doing it consciously, but it was subconsciously. Um, the face paint that he's wearing is actually resembles a, a human skull. It's a death's head, hmm. um, is, is what it looks like. And, and the, and the, 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 the makeup is actually designed to scare children, not, you know, amuse them Uh, (laughs) and and kids today kids today are afraid of clowns there this is like a whole new generation of and and i think that's why circuses not only the animal rights issue but i think that the fear of clowns is part of the reason why circuses seem to have disappeared 
Yeah, it, it, it certainly probably Gacy definitely probably contributed to it. But uh, if, if you watch the, the Joker movie with, with Joaquin Phoenix, uh, again, it's a very dark film. Um, there is a decided, you know, uh, dark vibe to it. Um, you will clearly see that his face paint uh, is modeled on uh, John Wayne Gacy. And again, so it's a very dark film. Um, so that should come as no surprise. I, I very much liked it. But um, when you do watch it, pay attention to it because you will clearly see this correlation with Phoenix's Joker and uh, the face paint of uh, the serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. Someone's asking. So as we get into more of these, the symbolism, someone's asking, are is this intentional or is it sort of by in other words, are they trying to I, I think of the example of like the subliminal messages that were supposedly on rock and roll records, you know, back in the day when Christians were burning rock and roll records, because if you played them backwards, there were secret messages in there. Are they trying to influence us with these messages secretly or is this just part of the art of making movies that they they put these symbols in there because some of it seems very hidden like you say in your title yeah it, it, it it's not there's no universal answer to it um it's really it depends on the sophistication of the filmmaker um some movies have these hidden uh undercurrents uh within them um sometimes they don't um Sometimes the the director and the maker and the producers are are, are very conscious of you know uh, of, di of different uh, you know esoteric themes or arcane themes and they put it in or as an allusion to something else. Um, and sometimes and what what I've also argued in the book is sometimes they are appear there, but I, I believe it is the result of a subconscious mechanism um, that essentially that the creative through the creative process. Uh, they are subconsciously including uh, so, some symbolism. Um, I do believe a lot of the times it's intentionally placed, but I do in some in some uh, cases. Again, it's it's you got to go case by case. There's no universal. It's all there. It is, and you just got to look at the movie and sort of break it down on its own. Um, there are some instances where there is clearly uh, you know an, an occult theme going on or, or something like that but it seems more of a product of the producer or the you know filmmakers uh sort of unconscious mind as it were uh, i think of the movie like ed by ed wood uh glenn or glenda which was uh quirky this is the one I, the example i always give um which was this very early 1952 film it's just B movie. It's it's absolutely silly, uh, put up by Ed Wood, but he actually uh, casts uh, Bella Lugosi as a Gnostic demiurge, um, and it's believe it or not one of the best examples of a Gnostic demiurge uh, you will ever see on film, and uh, I, I am one hundred percent convinced that that is uh, subconscious. That I, I have no reason to believe that Wood knew much about the Gnostic philosophy or the Gnostic heresy, yet he included this in his film anyway. Uh, so again, it just goes to the individual film. It ha in, in my opinion, in, in my experience, at least when I analyze movies, I do them one by one on a, on an individual basis, see what's going on, uh, if anything at all. And then, you know, determine the level of sophistication on it and see, you know, at that point I can kind of get a good idea as to what, what or what is what not what or what not the filmmakers are going for. All right. Now, let's talk about some of the uh, individual items from the uh, Cinema Symbolism uh, 3 book. Uh, so 9-11 conspirators 
you're saying that they modeled their attack off of the movie Spies Like Us? Uh, well, what, what I what I hypothesized, and it's just a hypothesis, um, is that uh, if if the um, if you want to uh, go down the path that 9-11 was an inside job, um, and again, it, I'm not stating it as a fact. I'm just presenting it as a hypothesis. The, the one thing that I, fa- I found very interesting with, with, with this theory was um, that there was a um, – if you're going to go down that – if you're going to go down that path with 9-11, that it was an inside job, um, the first question that begs answering is um, how did they get into the building uh, – at these uh, thermite charges to detonate to cut the you know load bearing members in in the uh, twin towers, um, and it turns out, um, believe it or not, that there was a company uh, that was hired to actually work on the elevators uh, of the World Trade Centers uh, about nine months prior to nine eleven, starting in January of one, going right up until August of one, and uh, if you know anything about about if you've ever been in a big office building or anything like that, I've have been in many, um, you will know, of course, that the premier company in the United States to repair escalators and elevators is Otis or Otis. Um, I mean, they're all over the place. It's the largest elevator and escalator company in the world. And what was peculiar about the thing with 9-11 was uh, the the company that was, that when I found this out, was that, that they actually hired um, to, to, to do this repair work that would have given them access to the core columns of the buildings was a company called uh, the Ace Elevator Company. Well, when I saw that name, the, the, the first thing that sprang out of my mind was, oh, the, this company was clearly named after – uh, this this uh, company in a movie called Spies Like Us called uh, the Ace Tomato Company, and uh, what made it, what made it particularly strange was if you ever watched that movie, it, it, the movie came out I want to say in the mid eighties, eighty five, eighty six. Uh, Ace Tomato Company was the government, the CIA's uh, front company for doing all its clandestine assassinations <laughs> and weapons wow. and things like that. I, I didn't remember uh, yeah, that, and, and, and so and so just, there's the there's there's the connection, which seems very strange. Uh, you know, to have that, to have that same name of that, uh, you know, the name Ace uh, involved. Yeah, in it, it, it is. It, it is very strange. And I, like I said, when I when I was researching this, I just I just stumbled upon it quite by happenstance. Um, and I did think it was strange. And uh, what makes it even more peculiar is, um, of course, that Ace Elevator has vanished. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, there is subsequently. And Ace Elevator Company, I believe in Florida, uh, but they came on the scene like in 2007, 2008. Um, there was one that existed prior to 9-11, but it has subsequently completely. Wow, the conspiracy, conspiracy people that love my show are going to are going to run with with that. That's that's fascinating. And on, on 9-11, the book also talks about um, imaging in films like Vanilla Sky, The Matrix, Fight Club. What are you talking about there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and this is this is something that I I, I really I document. I I, th- I think when I do cinema symbolism form, I'm gonna have to put all the pre nine eleven imagery into a single chapter because it's so much. Um, yeah, I mean, when when, when you when you uh, when you start looking at this and you start looking at all the imagery, uh, especially leading up to it. Um, you will find all, all these little 9-11 uh, homages or foreshadowing popping up. Um, I, I, I mean, it's clearly there. 
Um, I don't know. I, I find it hard to believe. I'm not. I'm not in the camp that uh, believes that there's a bunch of Hollywood producers sitting around saying, "Oh, let's put 9/11 imagery in because we know some event's going to happen." I, I don't buy that at all. Um, I think it's a supernatural uh, phenomenon that that, that is, is causing that. Uh, I document it um, ex- exhaustively in the book. Uh, it's it's uh, you know. Do, do you think I, it's it do you think it's the like that, the idea, Rob, of the there's this concept of sort of that we're living in some sort of a simulation and this is not a, a crazy thought and that in that simulation or that computer program that's running that some of these things are are sort of planted in in the program is that sort of what you're thinking no no i don't go down that route i i i look at it as psychological um I, I take the approach of Plato and Young and things like the collective unconscious okay. and the theory of forms and, I, and like Emanuel Schwettenborg, the Christian mystic who got into dream visions. Um, I, my take on it is that um, that there is that there is in, in, in the subconscious mind this treasure trove of symbols and, and subconscious thought and my take on it is that the creative process and of course the film films making is a highly creative process is is producing some sort of reverse engineering as it were that through creating movies um the the that the filmmakers are subconsciously it, it's it's a it's a it's a prophetic mechanism it's, yeah it's so like i was going to say almost movies. like a subliminal prophecy that's happening and they themselves yes. don't e- they, they don't even know they're doing it but what they're producing ends up being a prophecy of the future and it becomes so hard to deny it because a lot of this is it's just too specific uh, to deny it. And we're certainly not talking about prophecy in terms of the Bible, folks. I'm not talking that way. I'm just talking that it, it does seem like some of these are like premonitions, if you will, of the future that get built into some of these movies. It, it's hard to deny it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That that's that's my take on it. I I do point out, and I do when I, when I talk about this, I, I do make a distinction that a lot of times I do believe that esoteric imagery in films is intentionally planted. I mean, I could go over loads of examples for you, but when it comes to things like this. Uh, with 9-11, I do believe it's some sort of subconscious mechanism going on that is making these films prophetic. The the symbolism with 9-11 um, prior to the event is quite astounding. I mean, and it, what makes it even more disturbing is it's like a lead up to it. Um, I mean, it becomes much more plentiful um, and abundant in the films uh, the closer you get to the actual event of 9-11. You know, you mentioned Vanilla Sky. I mean, there's The Matrix, The Patriot, uh, The Simpsons episode, Fight Club. Um, you know, all these movies have this sort of pre-9-11 imagery in it. Um, but I also talk about, um, and this is where it really becomes strange, is 9-11 is not the only thing that film seem to predict i mean and and again it's some of it's quite astounding um i get into um for example i believe it was in 79 or 80 um right before three mile island i mean i say right before it was like two weeks beforehand uh they the, there was a movie release called the china syndrome which was about a nuclear reactor melting down um and then there is believe it or not and, and i'm not saying this from a political standpoint i usually avoid politics when i get into my books unless there is a political um sub sub you know subcurrent like in the wizard of oz for for instance, but um, Donald Trump, um, there is 
lots of uh, media that predicts Donald Trump's ascendancy to the presidency. Um, and that's that's interesting. I, I, I was taken by that. Um, and also, so what wasn't his important. wasn't his impeachment hinted at in the Joker movie? Yeah, and and, and in the Joker movie, there's uh, there 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 is actually in 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 the Joker film, um, the there is a Donald Trump analog, a counterpart, um, in that in that movie. It's the Thomas Wayne character who is Bruce Wayne's father. Um, he is clearly modeled after in that film, uh, Donald Trump. And there's an actual headline. Um, in it that says problems with Ukraine, trouble with Ukraine. Um, and when you watch it, it's clearly, I mean, the movie is set in the 1980s and it's obviously an allusion to, uh, but I thought it was very interesting coupling that with the Donald Trump analog. And the, the movie came out right before the impeachment. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was somewhat prophetic. Um, and then with Trump, you can get it, you can look at the movie, uh, Lego movie, uh, which, which, uh, gets into that. And then there was, uh, a sort of mattress commercial. Uh, that also uh, hints at Trump's presidency. And then there's also the movie Gremlins 2, uh, which came out in the early 90s, uh, which also which also gets into it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's not just limited to uh, 9-11. Now, give a, let's go back to 9-11 and talk about these movies, Vanilla Sky, The Matrix and Fight Club. These are the three. Sure. Uh, what exactly are you saying was in those movies that we can look back at now as sort of being a precursor in imagery uh, to 9-11? Oh, absolutely. Um, in, in Vanilla Sky uh, with Tom Cruise, that movie came out uh, about two or three months after 9-11, but it was shot beforehand. And, and the very end scene of it, uh, I guess I'm going to spoil it here, but that's okay. The movie's over 20 years old. <laughs> um, the, end, the, the, end of the, the end of the movie features Tom Cruise or Tom Cruise's character uh, ascending to a, a very high skyscraper in New York City, overlooking the Twin Towers. You can see him off in the distance, and he has to leap off. Um, he has to jump off uh, in order to obtain consciousness. Um, in the Matrix movie, um, Neo's passport actually expires on 9-11-01. Wow. Um, I mean, it's the exact date. Wow. And, um, and, and, and that movie came out in the late 90s um, in Fight Club. Uh, is another one um, where you have Tyler Durden at the end with the destruction of the financial buildings, uh, referring to it as Ground Zero. And uh, there's the destruction in, in that movie of the uh, piece of corporate art, uh, which was the, it's the giant globe. Um, and if you look at that, that is clearly modeled after the sphere, which uh, sat in the old uh, plaza at, at uh, the World Trade Centers. Um, and that's destroyed in Fight Club. And of course, it was badly damaged, of course, in 9-11. Um, and the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson, that, that's always an interesting one. That came out in, in uh, the summer of 2000, so a little under a year before, before the event. Um, at the very opening sequence of, uh, of that film, um, Mel Gibson's character is making a chair. He's carving a wooden chair. Um, and this is actually when the credits are rolling. This is at the very beginning. And he takes the chair and he puts it on scale to weigh it. Um, and he says, he says the chair weighs nine pounds, 11 ounces. Um, and then he sits on it and it comes crashing down. Uh, the Big Lebowski with Jeff Bridges, uh, I believe takes place on 9-11-91. 
wow. uh, 10 years uh, ten years to the date of the event. And what's interesting about that date was um, that's the date that George Bush Sr., uh, George Bush 41, uh, gave the New World Order speech. I don't know if people may not be aware of that. Hmm. It was on September 11th, 1991. Um, and uh, you'll see the date in, in the Big Lebowski, uh, which came out again in the mid to late 90s. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you look at it, and then, of course, oh, the other one I'm, I'm leaving out is the uh, lone gunman pilot. Um, this was a spinoff of the X-Files uh, that came out. Um, the, the, the pilot episode came out, I believe, in March of 01. So about, let's see, six months beforehand. And the original lone gunman pilot uh, dealt with um, hijackers hijacking uh, airlines, air, air, uh, commercial airliners, and crashing them into the World Trade Centers. Uh, so, I mean, that was, you know, screwy. Um, and that came out like six months beforehand. And like I said earlier, the, the thing that makes it so peculiar is it's like a lead up. It's like a countdown almost. You know, it, it comes the, the, the closer you get to the event is when this stuff really starts to pile on. Uh, it's, it's very astounding. Wow, this is this is probably our best interview that we've had, and and we've we've we're almost out of time. But I mean, th- th- this has been fascinating just to talk about. It almost sounds like there could be a book just on nine eleven uh, symbolism in movies and media because just what we talked about right now is giving me chills. All these these precursors, um, but let's talk about the Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland. Of course, two stories that everybody's familiar with, and I understand that you're re-editing the cin- cinema symbolism number one, and you're going to be getting more into those two stories. Uh, tell us what the symbolism is uh, in both of those. Sure, absolutely. Um, those two those two stories uh, reflect each other, um, and they're essentially. Um, there's a lot going on in both of them. Um, the authors of both of them were very mystics, were, were mystical. Uh, Lewis Carroll believed, well, belonged to the Psychical Research Society, which investigated supernatural phenomenon. L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, was a member of Madame Blavatsky's uh, Theosophy uh, uh, Movement, Theosophy Society. Um, so you have, right off the bat, an esoteric influence upon these two writers. And they, they, they're, they're pretty much the same story. Uh, they're essentially, uh, Gnostic allegories. Uh, Gnosticism is a Christian heresy. Um, and it involves in, in Alice in Wonderland, the little girl goes underground and has this underground adventure where she eventually comes to know herself, have a Gnostic epiphany, um, where she sort of realizes that the world of adults is basically bumpkin, um, and is really no different than being a child. And of course, Dorothy Gale in the the Wizard of Oz, she goes above ground, she goes up, up and away uh, to the magic land. Um, and she has the same thing. She has the sort of Gnostic revelation, this Gnostic epiphany, which is a little different than Alice. Um, hers is that there's no place like home. Um, so that's essentially the, the, the two stories run parallel, um, you know, on, on, on that thread. Um, I mean, they're, they're, both stories are overloaded with esoteric undercurrents uh that you know the, the gnosticism aside i mean so like for example in um in, in alice in wonderland you have lewis carroll who was the mathematician um there's the scene in in in, in alice in wonderland where uh the playing cards are painting the rose bushes uh white to red uh this is clear reference to john d uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, fellow mathematician who was uh, Queen Elizabeth's court astrologer. What, what was the name again? His, you cut out there. You said it was a reference to John who? D. 
D. Okay, John um, D. Okay, go John ahead. John D. Yeah, that's okay. And he, he, of course, his his angelic magics and math- mathematical philosophies are the underpinnings of the Rosicrucians. Uh, so the whole idea of uh, the painting the white to red is a reference to uh, the Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, uh, the Rosy Cru- the Rosicrucians. Um, Alice in Wonderland, um, or excuse me, Wizard of Oz, uh, same thing. Um, I mean, we have the entire political un- undercurrents going on in that in that movie, um, in that story carried carried forward into the movie. Um, you know, where the Wizard of Oz is William McKinley, the Yellow Brick Road is the gold standard, which leads to Emerald City, which is uh, the paper money, the paper currency. And of course, this was what President McKinley was trying to do, was trying to use uh, the gold standard to back paper money. Uh, the, the Scarecrow is the American farmer. The Tin Man is the American laborer. Uh, the the uh, Cowardly Lion is Williams Jenning Bryant, who was political, which was William McKinley's political opponent. Um, he was a non-drinker. He was what's called a teetotaler. Um, this is where the dog's name comes from, Toto. Oh. Um, so a lot of political allegory going on. And then, of course, you get into the, you know, sort of occult aspects of, of the movie where it being a journey of enlightenment, um, sort of the, the idea of um, the Gnostic revelation of journey going on this magical journey. Uh, you can look at it as a uh, – you can also look at it as in terms of like Kabbalah, um, which is going on this journey of spiritual purification. Um, if you want to apply that, you would clearly see the Wicked Witches of the West um, as being the Gevara uh, sphere, Sephira of Kabbalah, um, sort of journey through the uh, spheres of spiritual purification. So, yeah, a lot going on in The Wizard of Oz, a lot going on in Alice in Someone's asking, Rob, I'm going to throw this in because it sounds like it would, would make sense. Someone's asking, is there any connection between... Uh, the red pill and the blue pill from the matrix with the idea of going down the rabbit hole uh, in, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland is, is, is that sort of a, a, an update of the same idea? Well, yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's in, in the matrix, it's a clear um, Alice in Wonderland illusion. I mean, well, how does Neo go to the real world? He goes through the looking glass, right? I mean, he follows Alice in Wonderland. I mean, it's follow the white rabbit. That's what gets into Trinity. And then, of course, he, he goes right through the looking glass. He melds with the mirror to, to, uh, wake up in the real world. That's a complete, um, Alice in Wonderland, uh, reference. And, and that, that, the, the Matrix is, um, a Gnostic film. In fact, I would, I, I mean, it's like Alice in Wonderland in that it's this journey of self-revelation. Clearly, the Neo Anderson character is a Gnostic Christ. Um, it's, it's the Valentinian. Uh, thread of Gnosticism. Um, I mean, when you're getting into Gnostic cinema, I mean, The Matrix is in the top three of all time of Gnostic cinema. So yeah, I mean, I mean, you, if, if you're seeing parallels with The Wizard of Oz and The Matrix, that is absolutely intentional because they are both uh, Gnostic fables at the end of the day. Um, and you're right, I am in the process of uh, updating, uh, of re-editing uh, the books. And with the 9-11 stuff, I will just conclude with, um, just to go back to, harken back to what you were talking about. When I do Cinema Symbolism 4, I'm going to include uh, an entire chapter by itself on all the 9 okay, uh, yeah, imagery. I mean, that that almost could be its own book, maybe. Maybe there's not enough for that. One last one I want to talk about. So, sure. the, the Exorcist, which that movie always, uh, oh man, that just creeped me out. I remember my parents left us with a babysitter and they went off to the, move, to the movies with some friends to see that movie. And they came home and they were like changed people. 
Uh, and I remember here overhearing them talking with their friends about how much they regretted <laughs> having to having gone to see that movie, you know, and that was, of course, you know, back in the day when things weren't as realistic in the movies as they are presently. That movie still it, to this day has the power to creep me out if I see any clips from it. But there is this this plaque at the bottom of the Georgetown steps that is an example of synchro black magic. Tell us about that from the movie The Exorcist. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, that's um, The Exorcist. I'll get to the plaque in a minute. In one second, The Exorcist is a movie that is overloaded with uh, esoteric themes, light versus dark, Manichaeanism, hot versus cold. The movie starts out in the desert heat, ends up in the frigid cold. Um, so it, it's this very dichotomous light versus dark, um, good versus evil. I mean, they, and they use a lot of uh, subliminal uh, occult underpinnings to to plant that in your subconscious mind. Um, yeah, the, the the plaque on the um, on on the street is on, on the at the bottom of the steps is very interesting um, because it was dedicated on um, October 30th of, of all things, which one it happens to be my birthday, but two, um, of course. Being born on October 30th, you know, that is Devil's Night, um, you know, right before Halloween. And I just found that very interesting that, you know, it was almost like, you know, it was carrying forward this sort of demonism, this black magic of The Exorcist, which, of course, is <clears throat> arguably one of the darkest movies ever made, if not the darkest movie yeah, ever for made. Yeah, sure. Um, that they, they that they would dedicate that plaque on Devil's Night. I thought, you know, I mean, how you know how synchronistic, clear example of uh, carrying forward the uh, darkness, uh, the devilry of uh, of uh, the Exorcist, and planting it on that plaque in material culture um, into the actual material world. Um, very, very unique, very odd to say the least. Let's uh, give you the last minute here to tell us about all the books and how people can get them and how they can follow you online. Sure. Well, first off, I want to say thank you, Jim, for having me on tonight. It was my pleasure to be here. Our pleasure. Um, again, you. anytime you want to, yeah, anytime you want to have me on, just you know, shoot me the email. And we'll do it all over again. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth. The easiest way to find me is just go to my website. It's my name, uh, Robert W. Sullivan IV dot com. www Robert W. Sullivan, and for the fourth, it's the letter I, the letter V. Dot com. Uh, there's information about me. There's links to buy the books. Um, all my books are available on all the major online retailers like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Uh, they're available in paperback form and in the ebook form. Um, again, go to my website. It's the easiest way to find me in the books. Robert W. Sullivan, Ivy.com. Uh, there's information about me, information about upcoming shows I'm going, um, such as this one. Um, and, you know, how to buy the books. Just go there, check it out. It's a very easy site to navigate. And again, thank you, Jim, for having me on tonight. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. A pleasure is all ours. A fantastic, fantastic uh, interview, as always. And uh, I know some of you had called in and wanted to get on with a question. I just didn't have time, and we had a little bit of technical issues, too, so I didn't get to any of the callers tonight. I apologize for that, but I did read some of the questions that came in over the email. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. So long, everybody.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+ plus. terms and conditions apply. See website for details.